say I was prepared to tell everyone to turn to First Peter chapter. Second Peter chapter 1, but earlier in the foyer, it just felt like the Holy Spirit just changed my message because I specifically, I'm very savvy with the internet, and I specifically asked my wife this morning if this was that little thing that was, you know, online and YouTube because I saw the video where another church did this, and she lied to me. <laughs> and my mom, I've used this as an illustration before, and, and she was deceptive. My mom used to teach us, and I've told you how, you know, sometimes you're taught even by your parents bad theology that liars hang by their tongues in hell. And I thought that was false. But today, I mean, you know, my, I, mean, I mean, the Lord says in Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are detestable to the Lord, but faithful people are his delight. I mean, just in verse 4, a wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a wife who causes shame is rottenness in his bones. Any husbands and fathers here can identify with that? Amen. I mean, that's the loudest amen I've gotten in a while. Anyway, all right, we can go to, we can go to Peter now. Just had to get that out of my system since I was on to this ploy and was lied to. I text Pastor Bunch, I said, they liars. Uh, hey, yeah, amen, amen. I need, some, I, I need somebody to talk to me. All right. <laughs> Unity and lies? You, you, you unify around the truth. Anyway, so uh, many of you have probably heard the uh, statement, you had to see it to believe it, um, which, you know, maybe, maybe that fits today, I don't know. Um, but, but usually that's said by people who um, have seen something that they know is so unbelievable that when they tell their friends and when they tell their family and they tell other people about this thing that they've experienced and that they witness, that most likely they're not going to believe them or, man, this, this thing could be, um, you know, just completely unbelievable unless you see it. And so you'll hear people say, um, you've got to see it to believe it. Um, there's some, uh, some places to visit and to go that um, you would walk away from and go, you have to see it to believe it. Um, we were able to go to the Grand Canyon a few years ago, and uh, you just can't capture it on a camera. You, you just cannot capture its beauty and its vastness and just how great of a place it is. It's one of those things you would have to say, you'd have to see it to believe it. Well, this is played out oftentimes in sci-fi movies and, and TV shows where maybe a monster has come, an alien has landed, and they're killing people or causing chaos, and uh, all of a sudden one of the characters are trying to explain it to the police, or they're trying to explain what's happening, um, and the, the people just don't believe them. In fact, they think maybe they've gone crazy, or um, they're high on drugs, or something like that, and it's one of those things of you, you have to see it to believe it, because I know it's unbelievable. Um, but you would just have to see it in order to place your trust in that thing. Well, in Peter's portion, uh, in this portion of Peter's letter today, um, it's essentially like he's telling Christians, you should believe it because we saw it. You should believe it because we saw it. It's actually kind of an appeal to their trust. He, he's appealing to them based on his character and who he is um, as a spiritual leader, as an apostle, as an elder. And so in the first part of verse 16, that's where we're going to begin. We're going to go from 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 to verse 21. 
I'm in the CSB. If you want to pull it up on your YouVersion Bible app, it's in your outline. It'll be on the screen. 2 Peter 1.16, this is how he begins this portion of his letter. He says, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to write this down. The gospel is the main ingredient to the Christian faith and message. The gospel is the main ingredient to the Christian faith and message. After Jesus was crucified um, and he rose to new life, he spent 40 additional days on the earth doing ministry. And in that time, he was appearing to many different people. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to the disciples. And the Bible tells us um, that he also appeared to over 500 other witnesses. And so after Jesus had um, ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit was poured out onto um, these apostles and the the other people who were in the upper room, um, they went about and they began to preach the gospel and they began to establish this first century church. And so they preached that Jesus came in the flesh, that he lived the perfect life that no one else could live, that he was crucified to pay for the sins of those who would believe in him, that he was buried and three days later rose to new life, promising to come again to rule as judge and to reign as king over both the living and the dead. But according to verse 16, it appears that Peter is now having to defend his message as if these corrupt teachers were telling people that the apostles' teachings were cleverly contrived myths, because that's exactly what he answers to, and that's exactly what he attacks essentially in his letter is this claim. Um, I saw a tweet this week from Sam Luce who said, accusations from a narcissist are confessions. Now, I don't know if these spiritual leaders were narcissists, but what we see is these corrupt leaders um, and these corrupt teachers gaslighting the Christians. They were the ones who were teaching and promoting cleverly contrived myths that couldn't be verified, and yet they were teaching the people and they were influencing the people that, that, that the apostles' message was a cleverly contrived myth, that they were teaching myths and they were trying to mislead the people. It was gaslighting them. They were accusing the apostles of doing the very things that they were doing. And so here, what they were teaching, this, these teachers, um, was completely anti-Christ and it was anti-biblical. Now, they didn't have the whole Bible at this time. They had the Old Testament, they had the apostles' teachings, um, but they're accusing the apostles of these things. And so these teachers weren't these friendly, all shucks kind of good people that um, they, they were just a little off in their theology. They were just a little off in their beliefs, but they're good people. And it's okay to really associate with them and keep them around. That wasn't this group of people. They were um, not only wrong in their beliefs, they were corrupt and dangerous. They were ravenous wolves who attacked the gospel, which not only is that central ingredient to Christianity and to the Christian faith, but it is the very power that saves. That's why this is so important. It's not only important that we get things right, but that they got things right, because an attack on the gospel and a twisting of the gospel um, 
really affects and it goes after the very power that Paul says in Romans is the power unto salvation. That's why it is so important that we get our theology and the things that we believe right. And it's not just, you know, well, we're a little wrong here and we're a little wrong there. You, you, you don't eat just a little bit of rat poison. You, you don't, uh, there's things that even in little amounts you would avoid because it's deadly. When it comes to our spiritual selves and when it comes to the salvation of the lost, it's important to know what you believe and to believe it accurately. And so these people were ravenous wolves who were doing harm because they were attacking and diminishing the very power unto salvation, the very core message of our faith. But what I have learned and what I see here. Um, is that people are content, <laughs> this is funny today, believing lies as long as they come from close friends or your wife. We're, we're just content, content with believing lies when they come from close friends. This happens in the church world all the time. In fact, I have a couple of friends who have recently gone through these things. Uh, a pastor or a spiritual leader who's in the church might teach the gospel accurately, faithfully, lead with integrity, make a positive impact in people's lives. But the moment that gossip or lies are told about that person, they're never given the benefit of the doubt about seeking the truth. Um, people who hear that gossip and hear that um, those lies will just basically, they're content with believing them because they come with, from a close friend. And so they never seek the truth out. They just adopt the lies. And it happens in the church world. It happens in relationships. Oftentimes it doesn't even have to be in the church. You might've experienced that in your own life with mutual friends where somebody said something about you and someone just believed it because it came uh, from a close friend. And it doesn't matter what kind of impact you have had or a teacher has had or a pastor has had in that life, in that person's life, it's just kind of thrown to the side and believed because it comes from a close friend. The false teachers and corrupt leaders of our day might motivate you. They might make you, make you feel really good about yourself. You might listen to their teaching and be like, oh, man, I'm uplifted. And we talked about this just a couple weeks ago. I'm uplifted every time I hear from them, never convicted, none of those challenges. And so we gravitate towards those things. But no matter how um, friendly they are, no matter how um, they make you feel, if they're teaching false teaching, they're teaching false doctrine, they're just as dangerous as what Peter is writing to in this time and in this day. Um, the, the false teachers and corrupt leaders of our day are no different. It might look different, sound different, be received different, but it's just as dangerous. See, Peter isn't with these Christians, and he might not have as close of a relationship as um, these other influencers have. We don't know who these spiritual leaders are. We don't know if they've infiltrated the, the church as we see in Jude. Jude says that these false teachers had snuck into the church. They had crept in there by stealth and that they were taking and abusing the grace of God and, and making it into sensuality. And this mimics a lot of what these teachers were doing here in Peter. Where, where, and I've heard that those books are very closely related and connected. 
But, but you'll see in later chapters where they were essentially um, promoting that you can go just live however you want to live your life. You, you can go and give into sexual immorality. You can go in and give to, into all the pleasures of the world. Why? Because you got the grace of God. The grace of, God's grace will cover you. And that's an abuse of God's grace when we buy into those lies that, you know, well, this is just a, a white lie. This is just a small sin. God, God, you know, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. I'm not um, doing all these things. And so God will be okay with my little small sin because it's not significant like the others or like these larger sins. And that's a lie because it doesn't matter how small the sin or how big the sin, it still costs Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, his life. It required that he be beaten almost to death. It required that he be crucified, that he go through all that he went through for our salvation. So it doesn't matter if it's a small sin or a large sin, it all matters. But yet we believe and we buy into these things and that's what they were promoting. They were promoting that, oh, God's grace will cover you. Yes, God's grace covers us as we're trying to pursue after Jesus and we're trying to um, follow after him and we still sin. It's not intended so you can just continue to go live in sin and just um, blaspheme essentially and take advantage of this grace. Oh, I'm good. Chances are, if that's our mentality, really we don't know Jesus. Like, like we're not going to be in a marriage that's going to cause pain to our spouse, and we know that it causes pain to them, and yet we love them, and we're deeply committed to them, yet we go intentionally and go do things that would bring harm to them. We'd be like, oh, well, they love us. We're married. We're, we're, we're eternally um, committed to one another. That's not how marriage works. And people would look in and go, you're abusive. People would look in and go, you probably don't love your spouse if that's what you're doing. It's no different when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. It is a relationship. It's not just about saying a prayer and then having a golden ticket to heaven when you die. It is a relationship. It is a call to take up our cross and to die to ourselves, to be crucified to the things of the flesh and to follow after Jesus. It is a much higher calling than just, oh, you get to go to heaven when you die. And if that's your mentality, I fear that maybe you've either not been discipled well or you've not been explained uh, true salvation and true Christianity because it's not just limited to that. So this was very important. This was vital that they understand what they believe, but also that Peter writes very strongly against this um, these teachers who were misleading the people, and they could have been in the church, they could have been close relatives, but they, they, they could have had more influence over the church and over Christians than even Peter had. And so what we'll see here is Peter um, is going to essentially appeal to their trust based on his character. So he picks up in the second part of verse 16 and goes to 18 saying this, Instead, so what he's saying is our message is not cleverly contrived myths. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voices came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. And so the message Peter here and the apostles um, had been teaching isn't a myth. 
It's not a fairy tale. It's not even a theory. And that's really what sets them apart from the false teachers and those who would have crept into the church and crept into influence with these Christians is all they have is theory. All they have is opinion. They don't have the Holy Scriptures to support their view or their approach to Christianity and to life. But Peter here is saying, we are eyewitnesses. We saw this. We heard this. We witnessed this. We are firsthand eyewitnesses of these accounts. Well, what is he pointing back to? I'm not going to spend time here long, but I want to read these eight verses because some of you may not be familiar with this passage of Scripture and what he's pointing back to, but you could go and study it this week. It's called the Transfiguration. Um, it's Matthew 17, 1 through 8. And so this is what he's pointing back to. This is where he's saying, hey, we saw the magnification. We saw the glory of Christ. We witnessed it for ourselves. We heard the voice of God say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so this is what the scripture says, beginning in verse 1. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What did the Father do in this moment? Not only did he glorify the Son and elevate him, but that, see, in Peter's mind, Jesus was right there with Moses and Elijah, and the Father speaks up and says, No, 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 no. Jesus is greater. And he points them to be faithful to Jesus and to listen and obey his voice and to obey him. This is my son whom I'm well pleased. Moses, good man. I had a purpose for him. Elijah, good man. Had a purpose for him. But Jesus is my, he's my son. He, 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 he is the leader. He is the king. He is the ruler. And so, When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, Get up, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. See, this is the moment where Peter points back to. This is his eyewitness moment. This is what he saw. This is what he heard. And if you and I were in this position, this is those moments where we would come down the mountain and we would go to our friends and say, you'd have to see it to believe it. I mean, this was so unbelievable. You should have saw Jesus. You should have heard the voice. It was a life-transforming moment. It's much like when you and I meet Jesus for ourselves truly in that salvation experience where the light clicks on, where where he is revealed to us, where we believe, where we have that moment of transformation. And that in and of itself is more powerful oftentimes than sermons or just theory or just even scripture. Scripture is truth and there's power there. There's power in the gospel message, but there's also power in the second greatest story ever told. And that is your story. That's when you take your story of where you were lost and you use it as a bridge to the gospel. You tell how God has transformed your life. You tell how he has made you new. You tell how you used to struggle with these things. And yet because of Jesus, he has healed you and he's helped you to be an overcomer in those areas. There is a power in that story, just as there is power 
in Peter's story. It's not just a theory. It's not what these religious teachers are telling you because they haven't eyewitnessed these things. They haven't experienced these things. They didn't hear these things. And so there's a big difference in a gospel-centered message and the cleverly contrived myths of not only these corrupt teachers in Peter's day, but the corrupt teachers in our day and those occults who profess to be Christian, which we are not one of. I just want to point that back out. But there are occults, and they do say they're Christian. But when you really hammer down and you, you, you screw down into the roots of their beliefs, they are not Christian. They sound Christian. They're very deceptive. And if you just were to listen on the surface, it would sound very Christian. But when you hammer down into their core beliefs, they are not Christian. The gospel message that that which Peter and the apostles taught pointed back to Jesus. It magnified him. It ascribed glory to him and only him. But every corrupt teacher of all time causes division where they have influence that they want to divide, that their false and corrupt message point back and elevate mankind, elevate humans, whether it be men, whether it be women. Their false and corrupt message might sound like um, things like humans share in God's deity. There are those, there are mainstream people who profess to be Christian who will tell you that you share in the deity of God. Not that um, you are adopted into the family, that you're co-heirs, but that you share in some sort of deity. And then there are some who will just say that you are deity, that, that you are a little God, whether it be Christian or whether it be an occult. Some promote man's own pleasure and prosperity over humbling, humbly taking up your cross, dying to self, and following Jesus as Lord. So there are false teachers and false teaching who will tell you, just do this, just name this, just believe this, just think this way, and you'll have all the things that you desire. You, you'll have all those things that you want. And they promote self and pleasure and profit and prosperity over the fact that what we're called to even by Jesus, and that's to humble ourselves, to, to, to understand that because he was hated, we'll be hated. Because he was persecuted, we'll be persecuted. To take up our cross, to die to ourselves, to die to the fact that, you know what, some of us may never be as prosperous as other people, and we may never be as prosperous on earth as we desire to be, but he calls us to the same life and to the same pattern that he had, and that is to die to ourselves on the cross. The, the only difference is, um, especially in America, many of us aren't having to actually physically lay on a cross and die physically for our faith, but there are people around the world who do that daily, who physically have to die, who physically follow in the steps of Christ dying for their faith. And many of us, we're just called to sometimes give up pleasures or to give up um, luxuries or to give up those things within us, the, the greed and the pride, those things that would keep us from following after Jesus. Maybe it's convenience. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe it's the, our time. I mean, you name it. Th those things that we so allow us to or, or, or prevent us from following after Jesus. Those things that have become idols in our lives. It could be family. It could be relationships. You name it. But we're called to not allow anything to come between us and Christ. That's where the story of the rich young ruler comes in. And, and while it was about possessions, for him it was possessions. For him, he says, I've done all the religion. 
I've done everything required of me. And Jesus says, good, go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And that was the thing he couldn't let go of. And for you, it might not be luxuries. For you, it might be something else that you're unwilling to lay down your life, to lay down that thing and follow after Jesus. And so we have to be careful because there are people actually promoting that, promoting the pursuit of materialism, pursuing the, the, the self and the, 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 the humanistic side of things rather than Christ. And then most teachings out of all of these, rob Jesus of his suffering and finished work on the cross, whether it's thinking positively, whether it's, you know, um, name it, claim it, gab it, grab it, all those type things, whether it's legalism. What it does is it actually robs Jesus of what he did, his finished work on the cross, his suffering, so that we might have salvation, and it puts the weight right back on you. Well, well you got to do this. Well, why haven't I been healed? Well, you must not have enough faith. Well, why hasn't God done this? Well, maybe you didn't believe enough. Maybe you doubt. What are they doing? They're putting the weight of everything back on yourself. Well, if you look this way, if you act this way, if you haven't gotten this right yet, at the moment of salvation, if you still struggle with this sin, or you're still um, you know, uh, having difficulties, if you're still struggling with an addiction, whatever, then, then you must not be truly saved. Now, there should be fruits in our life, but it doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle in a, sin, in, a, in a sin that might have a stronghold in our life. It doesn't mean that we might not need counseling or uh, rehab or those type things. But there are religious teachers who will tell you, well, if you still struggle with this, like if you didn't lose your desire for it right away, you must not be a Christian. It's legalism. It's, it's essentially, you got to follow this law. If you don't do this, if you don't, if you don't act in this way enough, then you must not be a Christian. It's legalism. And what it does is it takes all the weight off of Jesus and the, the weight that he carried on the cross and the, the finished work that he accomplished so that you could be saved by placing your faith in him and him alone for salvation. And it puts it right back on yourself. You've got to accomplish this. You've got to do this. You've got to believe this. And, and, and it robs him of his power. It robs him of his glory. Because when you feel like you have accomplished it and you feel like you've gotten it right, what do you do? Do you give glory to God? Absolutely not. We've talked about this before as well. It leads to self-righteousness. Because then you go, look at me. Look what I did. And that's where Paul warned Christians not to think more highly of themselves than they ought, because that can be their mentality. That can be your mentality. I got this right. I don't sin like that. How come they still sin like that? How come they do that? I don't do that. And so we have to be careful. These teachings rob Jesus of his power or severely diminish it. They still focus off of even Jesus' second coming as king and elevates mankind as our own kings and queens of our own kingdoms. Acts 1.3, he says, um, uh, it, it says this, after he had suffered, talking about Jesus, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus provided convincing evidence in his final 40 or so days on earth. Um, it says uh, in, in the scripture, period of 40 days, over a period of 40 days. So that final 40 days on earth, he didn't hide from people. He, he, he made his presence known, the scripture tells us, not only to the apostles, to the disciples, but also to, every, to over 500 witnesses. 
So, so over 500 people saw him. Over 500 people witnessed and were firsthand, um, uh, had firsthand eyewitness accounts. And Peter was one of them. And so whether a person, um, well, uh, to, on the religious side of things, every false religion that has been created has done, been uh, created in the dark. They don't have those eyewitnesses. They don't have that convincing proof that we see in Acts chapter 1. Every false religion has been created in the dark, usually by one person with no evidence and no eyewitnesses. It actually takes more faith to believe teachings outside of Christianity than it does to trust in the Bible. Whether um, a person claims to have found special writings or scrolls, had a vision or dream, or was visited by an angel, or maybe more accurately, probably a demon, conveniently no one is ever with them. Are you aware of that? Many of these single spiritual leaders who start these other religions or add on to Christianity, like they were the only ones there. They're the only ones that had the vision. They're the only ones that had this encounter with this angel. They're the only ones that found this writing. There is no one else to dispute their claims, and there is no one else to validate their claims. So now we go from having biblical evidence having apostles and disciples, having a faith that's over 2,000 years old, and we have all of this evidence, and yet we place our faith in one man over all of the evidence of Scripture. Because conveniently, they always make themselves this godlike figure that gets to solely determine what their followers believe and what they do with their life. Conveniently, um, they always place themselves in this godlike figure that um, is essentially the voice of God. They get to speak for God. In fact, Nikki and I were watching a show the other day where that was kind of the crux of things. And anytime anybody pushed back, essentially it was, "Are you push? I mean, are you disagreeing with God? Because I'm I'm the prophet that speaks for God. I, I'm the one. I'm His voice here on earth. I'm the the voice for this group." So essentially, to disagree with that one person is to disagree with God. To disobey this one person is to disagree with God. And you see how those things get twisted and how people get misled because it's all based on one person. They don't elevate the power and glory of Jesus. They demand loyalty and allegiance to themselves. But they'll throw Jesus in there because they still want to convince you that, yeah, I'm Christian, we're Christian. But, but I'm God's chosen person for this time or for this group, or I'm his voice. But yeah, we'll throw Jesus in there because we want to, you know, lead you to believe that we're still of the Christian faith. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19 through 21 says, We also have the prophetic word, strongly confirmed, and you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's as if Peter is addressing even modern-day cults and modern-day movements where this has been established because he says no interpretation has come just from man. It comes from the leading of the Holy Spirit. 
Look, every teaching that you ever hear or are exposed to, even including myself, has to be compared to Scripture and pointed back to Scripture, not just to what sounds spiritual and what sounds scriptural. It has to be validated by the truth of God's Word. And so if someone comes along and says, I've got this teaching and I've found this new, this new information that builds on, it's a new revelation of the Christian faith, it better line up with God's Word. And oftentimes it doesn't. Because God's word is truth, and it, is, it comes by the Holy Spirit. It's fully breathed and inspired by God. It is not just an interpretation of man. That's why there are not multiple interpretations of the truth of God's word. There might be multiple applications, but there are not multiple interpretations. It is interpreted as God intended, and as he breathed it out, and as he spoke it. And so you can write this down. The Christian faith and message are trustworthy. The Christian faith and message are trustworthy. Christianity also has a strong historical evidence to support its validity. I mean, archaeologists all the time, scientists all the time are finding uh, artifacts and things from ancient biblical times that validate Scripture. Uh, scrolls of the very scriptures that we believe and that we place our faith in and that we gain our, um, our, our spiritual maturity from. The fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies recorded hundreds and thousands of years before they were fulfilled in the New Testament, once again, strongly validated as true. There are, there are great apologetics. There's great apologetic books. There's great apologetic teachers that do an excellent job of helping point to all of the Old Testament prophecies that were written and prophesied thousands of years before they were fulfilled in the New Testament. And they were fulfilled, they, and these, these writings were written by different people. It's not like the same person said, here's a prophecy. Oh, here, here it's fulfilled. That you would go, ah. Eh. I mean, is, is that just a novel? Because the same author wrote the prophecy, but then wrote that it was fulfilled. No, these were different authors. These were different writers. These were different people that experienced the prophecy being fulfilled. And we've got Jesus' birth being promised over here, his ministry being promised 700 years, even further before he was born in the Old Testament. And then we got Peter over here saying, yep, I saw him transfigured. I heard the voice of God saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. These are different authors. These are different writers. Peter was not one of the writers of the Gospels. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so Matthew is writing about this, and Peter's in the story. Now, Peter is pointing back to it in his letter. They're different individuals. And so there are great apologetics who will tell you, like, be able to give you the statistics of this prophecy being fulfilled here by this person, especially when it comes to Jesus, and just how improbable it is, but just how miraculous it is. There's faith, there is historical evidence, both scientifically, both historically, that validate Scripture as true. Peter wrote that he had witnessed the things they preached about firsthand, but also they had the strong confirmation of the prophetic word. So he's saying, it's not just my eyewitness account, but the prophetic word also validates it. The things promised in the Old Testament, which Jewish Christians would have identified and been fully aware of, had been fulfilled in the person of Jesus and through his ministry. No other religion has that. No other faith teaching has that. Some religions like Islam claim to believe the Old Testament as we do, 
but they'll reject the New Testament or major parts of it. Some religions will claim either the Old Testament or they'll claim both the Old Testament and the New Testament, but they'll add their revelation to it, their book, their spiritual um, book with it. And those spiritual books have no historical backing to validate their claims. There's no archaeologists and scientists pulling up artifacts that um, validate the claims in their scriptures and in their books. In fact, in some places, um, they, they uh, even give places that have never existed. They, they list places, and, and if you do a historical study on it, they never existed. There's no historical evidence. Yet, in Christianity, we not only have the prophetic word, the scripture, but we have firsthand accounts by real people who were there, who gave their life for that testimony, who gave their life and was, and in some cases were crucified, were tortured because they believed this to be true, because they had seen it, they had experienced it for themselves. Because of their eyewitness experience and because of the prophetic word, at the time it was just the Old Testament that they had, but then they had their firsthand account with Jesus' ministry. And so coupled with those things, Peter tells them this, you will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place. No prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you three quick things before we close. Number one, pay attention to the truth of Scripture. These are some action steps you can take with you before we close. Number one, pay attention to the truth of Scripture. It has strong historical confirmation, both of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the good news for you, which was different from these Christians, is you're now 2,000 years on the other side of the writing of the New Testament. And those scriptures, you have more evidence than even these people in Peter's day had. They just had the eyewitness accounts. They had the Old Testament scriptures for the, prof the, the prophecy of that. But now we have those historical things that have been found and discovered to go, wow, that lines up with Scripture. Wow, that proves Scripture. You have more things to help build your faith and validate Scripture than at any time in history. Pay attention to the truth of Scripture. Number two, allow Scripture to be your light in dark times. Psalms 119, 105. This was the second verse I had to memorize as a child, and it's a good one. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. How do you survive very dark times, a dark culture? How do you, dis how do you survive despair? How do, you, how do you survive hopelessness? How do you survive when you don't have the answers? How do you survive when times get tough? How do you survive in suffering and in difficulty and in, in the unknown? How do you survive those things? How do you make it forward? How do you make progress when you don't feel like making progress, when you don't feel like going forward? You pay attention to God's word, but then you allow it to light your path, to lead you, to show you the way, 
that there is nothing that Scripture cannot help you with. There's nothing that Scripture cannot give you the answers to. That they, It cannot lead you in the right direction. It might not give you the answer, but it will point you to the answer. It will point you into the right path. It will point you to hope. It will point you to what you need to sustain you in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of struggles. It is the light that will direct your path. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. It will show you the direction to go. When it's an unknown, when you don't have the answer, follow scripture. It will lead you well. And then the final thing is scripture illuminates God's will and exposes man's will. Scripture illuminates God's will and exposes man's will. If you want to know if you're on the right path in your walk with Christ, look to Scripture because it will point to you where your agenda is wrong. It will point to you where your heart is wrong. It will point to you where your mindset and your attitude is wrong. But it also will illuminate God's will for you. Many people, I've heard it for for years. How do I know what God's will is? Look to God's Word. Look to the Scripture. It illuminates His will. There's a thing, it's kind of spiritual terminology, eisegesis versus exegesis. Big words, you're like, what is that? Eisegesis is to look at scripture, which a lot of people do at times, and they'll write themselves into the scripture and make it all about themselves. This is where we see abuses of scriptures or we see abusive abuses and misunderstanding of scriptures like, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. I cannot go tackle an NFL football player no matter how many times I quote that Bible verse and how much, how, how much faith I have in Jesus. That's not what that verse was talking about. But we'll take those verses and we'll make them about ourselves or it sounds good and so we apply it to our lives and yet it was written to a certain group of people, it was written for a certain circumstance and yet we make it about ourselves. We do that with some of the old historical stories in the Old Testament and uh, when, when David fought Goliath and when the, the Israelites um, walked around the walls of Jericho and we make that about our struggle and we make that about our problem and, and you just walk around it with faith and shout unto God and your wall will fall. No, the wall of Jericho fell. Your wall might not fall. Exegesis is the critical explanation of a text of Scripture. It it could be descriptive or prescriptive, meaning it could just describe what happened, the wall of Jericho. It might not be prescribing that you walk around the wall of your Jericho to make it fall. You see the difference? Prescriptive versus descriptive. Now, you can study God's Word uh, when a text is written about a certain group of people or a certain situation, and what you can do is go, what does this scripture teach me about God? Because God does not change. And so the same God that was with the, the Israelites when they walked around Jericho, when I am going through a struggle, when I am going through a difficult, that same God is with me. The same God that had the power to do that is with me and loves me and will not abandon me. Now, my problem may not fall down like the walls of Jericho, and it might not be slain like Goliath, but I still need that same God that has the power to do those things to help me through my circumstance and through my situation. 
For those who may not be followers of Jesus, that same God who can knock down walls and who can slay giants is the same God who can save you and redeem you from your sins. It is not impossible. So proper view of Scripture might take that which is descriptive and still learn from an unchanging God who says through Jesus, in, in the person of Jesus, he will never leave us and forsake us. That we can go into the world and we can make disciples, that we can love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, souls, and mind, that we can be obedient to him and he will not leave us and he will not forsake us. It's the same God of Israel and it's the same God that we worship today. But just because it happened for Israel or just because it happened for the apostles, healing and casting out demons and things like that doesn't mean you need to go to the hospital trying to raise somebody from the dead. Descriptive versus prescriptive. It's important to know God's word. It's important to know it accurately. And it's important to allow it to be a light that illuminates the path of your life so that you might live it well for the glory of God in good times, in prosperity, but also in bad times and in suffering. Because the good news is we have the Holy Spirit living within us and he will not leave us and he will not forsake us. The good news for us as Christians today, you have a faith that has been proven. It has valid evidence. It is not a myth. And so no matter what you face in life, look to God's word and trust that it is true. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that we have it so freely, that it is so available to us. God, we can walk down to the store today. We can drive to the store today. We can go to Walmart or Target. We can go to Amazon online, and we can freely purchase a Bible. Yet so many people over the years have lost their lives to make it that free, to make it that available God, I pray that it would not just be available to us, but that, Lord, it would be in us, that we would value it, that we would understand what it is that you have so freely given to us and that we would not take it for granted. Because, Father, those people who don't have it in communist countries, who will be imprisoned for it, who will lose their lives over it, it is of great value and worth to them. They will lay down their lives for it. They, they will risk imprisonment to make sure people have just pages of it. And yet we have maybe stacks of them in our homes. We have them on our bookshelves. We have them available however, whenever we want them. And yet oftentimes we neglect it. God, I know I do. I know I have. And so Lord, may we understand the true and valid faith that we have in Christianity. That it has been proven by history. It's been proven by science. It's been proven by the eyewitness accounts of those who helped to establish the first century church. But Lord, also may we value and understand the scripture that we possess and may we read it and study it and know it accurately. May we commit ourselves to the teaching of your word, to spiritual leaders and teachers and pastors who lead us well and lead us right, even if imperfectly, they're pointing us to Jesus. They're magnifying Jesus. They're, they're pointing people to the gospel. May we learn from them and may we be committed to them. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.